Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm proud of my school's record-breaking 21 Blue Star Award musical production nominations. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have students presenting at the Undergraduate Research Symposium right now. My name is Drew Ising, and my soccer team is on a seven-game winning streak, and our girls just allowed their first goal in 550 minutes. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking KBS Stout from Founders Brewing Company. This is, this comes very highly recommended. It's a super complex brew aged in bourbon barrels. Uh, I anticipate it's going to be a throwback to what we had with uh, Camden back when we had that oak-aged uh, Yeti. I think this is going to compete with that. Chocolate and coffee and bourbon. I like all these in my stout, so uh, this sounds promising. There's a Goose Island like Bourbon County stout that they release kind of semi-annually. It's a special release thing, and it is kind of the same way it is it's a tough one you said goose island i think so yeah from chicago i might add that to our list of uh yeah recommendations yeah. yeah so we got a third voice uh joining us from studio prime this time around drew is a biology teacher at baldwin high school just outside the kansas city area in addition to teaching intro and ap biology he is also the head women's soccer coach uh he also is the president of the kansas association of biology teachers he serves on the professional development team for his district, and he's been involved in biology at the Kanza Prairie, at the KU Field Station, and uh, even did some algal biodiesel work uh, at a KU lab, and then other sweet stuff, right? That's, uh, how you doing, Drew? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm excited to have Drew. I first met him when we were at a uh, AP Preparatory Institute summer session, and I just thought this was the coolest, funniest a resourceful, inspiring dude, uh, and I just wanted to follow him around and have lunch with him every day, and uh, and so uh, I haven't actually been able to interact with him very much, so I'm super pumped that he is here. So Drew, you're a biology teacher, which means there are three biology folks in the room again. So uh, this month's article is really focusing on science education at the K-12 level. Uh, so we looked at addressing the epistemic elephant in the room, epistemic agency, and the next generation science standards. That is by Miller, Mons, Roos, Stroop, and Berland. And actually, a uh, special thanks to Dr. Stroop, because uh, it was not without him, we would not have been able to have access to this article in time for the show in the first place. So the authors were even uh, helpful in getting access to the article. The elephant in the room is that the NGSS is about being content-driven to integration of process-driven. And so this is a critique of how effective the NGSS is in doing that. I thought that the authors were really aligned with the spirit of what the framework is supposed to be while also being really realistic about the things that can or should happen out there. So they're like, science practices are good, but if you're just telling your students to go model, you're not doing it yet. Like, I, I appreciated that kind of perspective that they brought from the writing and that kind of, that tone kind of pervaded the whole paper, I thought. Yeah, uh, they, they clearly communicated that in science and in science education, creating and improving explanatory models should be the heart of the experience. And we are all in agreement about that. But it's also sort of a cautionary paper that says we can't look at 
in GSS as a panacea that's going to just create that in our classroom and then we will solve the problem because there are great complexities to doing that. So when I, I was reading it, I was thinking about these teachers that I, I know that I've been motivated by with their, their anchoring phenomena, the first thing that they do, what you would think of as your, your anticipatory set in the old kind of like old school way of thinking about these things, uh, where you have this really great thing that uh, you, you think you're going to hook the students with, how these people, instead of just like using that to like magically motivate their students to do better, use that to drive a conversation with their students to get kind of questions the students are passionate about within the topic or within the unit. These teachers who, who take these student questions and will then plan their unit afterwards and so they'll take a topic where they know they want to talk about stages of mitosis, but these students are really passionate about cancer because one of their classmates was recently diagnosed with some sort of like colon, colorectal cancer or something. And so now they're able to then take the content they know they need to do and to frame it around something the students are passionate about. Gives them the flexibility to both teach what they know they need to teach to prepare them for success at the next level and gives the students a choice uh, for how the, the, the content's going to proceed. Well, I felt like that was the heart of their argument. I think you really nailed what their driving thesis was in the paper. They gave these four kind of outlining ideas of the kinds of things that we need to be doing with the framework. And the very first one is we, we need to solicit and build student knowledge. That's what we need to be responsive to. But that there's a distinction between I'm doing some formative assessment. Okay, you know those things. Now we can do what I planned to do a month ago. That that should that is different from doing what you're describing of what do you know about this topic? This thing resonates with you. We will go there and that determines the activities and the experiences that we're going to have. Yes. There was a passage that addresses what you're talking about that really called to me and I thought was very important. I thought it was very profound. Rather than treating student ideas as misconceptions that inhibit learning and must be replaced with correct explanations, the field increasingly positions student knowledge as continuous with scientific knowledge. And that was so powerful because we all in our teacher education programs and at least in the science education programs have been exposed to the idea of student misconceptions and how they're, a, they're this big, you know, Moby Dick of science education and they're making those misconceptions on their own and we've got to, we got to, we got to get those out of them where this is saying they're creating knowledge as scientists create knowledge. Our responsibility is then to help encourage their exploration of that knowledge so that it can mature as scientific knowledge also goes through that process so that it can mature. That was great. It was a liberating way to look at uh, what they know. And it again um, reinforces the importance of formative assessment as a cornerstone of responsive teaching. As I was reading it, I was really struck by kind of how teachers would approach this because the article is very focused on, on why it's best for students. But as a teacher, it makes me think I get tired of doing things the same way. I'm a, I'm a constant tinkerer with the way that I teach things and approach things. Uh, and so I, I wonder if this is good for me as a teacher because it gives me it gives me flexibility so that I'm not teaching the same thing every year and it would kind of reinvigorate me each time I'm doing it because it's still the content that I love, but I'm not getting tired of the way that I'm approaching it. I'm not doing it the same way every year. I might not do it the same way every class. Mm -hmm. 
you know, teaching five sections with 110 biology students, I might have four different ways that I'm teaching the class now if I'm doing it correctly. And that is terrifying to some teachers. Like I can see a situation where people are like, how do I assess this in different ways? How are my classes comparable? I can see administrators com complaining about like, well, is this version of the class harder than this version of the class? I, I was that teacher. When, when we worked together side by side, that was a frequent, um, we never really got serious about it, but we frequently exchanged good-natured salvos back and forth as you, Woodruff, were very comfortable with, heck it, where all of my classes are in different places, and I was like, that sounds terrifying to me. And I never got over that. I, I, I never got over that. So I am that teacher that would really struggle with, like, pacing-wise, even being a partial period one off of the other. That very rarely happened. I'm sure to some of my students' detriment. I'm, I'm sure that I neglected to respond in some ways from a pacing standpoint. I have a story that I really like about my AP class uh, the last year that I was teaching AP where we had that framing phenomenon. The first day of every unit, we looked at the test. We looked at here's the problem that you must solve to pass this unit that we're going to do for the next month or six weeks. And it was like the third unit of the second semester, and we were looking at um, the Delta 32 HIV immunity mutation and so they looked at the they looked at like the rundown like they you know they get it's a page worth of like resources to explain the phenomenon and then like the test is just what's happening like it's a one sentence prompt go is what it was and and so it's it's accessible enough that they can start to ask questions and start to generate here's what we know about that thing which is supposed to launch us into what we're going to be doing so they look at this problem and we had students and they immediately start like oh, this is, you know, well, this mutation changes this particular protein that's in the cell membrane, which changes how it responds to signaling molecules out in the body. And so these different signals are interpreted differently, but then the virus, you know, can't latch. And so this, this, this resistance happens, but then there's this change in cell signaling response. And I'm like, all that is true. I prepped an evolution unit for this. So like, this is an amazing setup for a cell signaling unit that we have a month from now. I didn't want to do cell signaling yet. And I had this moment of silent freeze where I'm standing there in front of the class and all I could say to them, what I actually said was like, you're right. And this conversation is amazing. I'm not ready. Like I can't go there because I didn't prepare myself to be there. I haven't been thinking about it at all. You are all correct. And I have failed to be ready to go there. We have to go a different direction. And they were really gracious about that. And we, and it was fine. We, you know, the unit felt fine to me, but I couldn't flex in that moment, and I will. I will lay on my deathbed and think about that choice. Like I, it haunts me that I wasn't ready to go there. Well, the importance of teacher flexibility is um, brought up again and again during this paper. And one of the critiques of the uh, example narrative that they gave was that there was a moment when a student provided a response that the teacher did not understand, and so she kind of gave a mm-hmm, yeah, and then moved on to something else. And so what I got from that is that failure to understand a student idea leads to sidelining that idea. So conscientious, conscientious efforts must be made to validate student participation, especially when it is divergent. And the consequences of failing to do that um, are significant. Over time, classrooms, the student, the cultures will identify what ideas are given greater value. And then divergent participation will decrease despite the value of that divergent participation. 
And again, as I'm reading this article, I have to say that I am guilty of this. And I don't know how or why I'm guilty of this, but I know because at the beginning of the year, in quarter one, I'm getting like 80, 90% of my kids participating in the the conversation. And by April, I'm getting about 40% of my kids participating in the conversation. And I think this is what is happening. I am somehow signaling to them what type of participation is valued and those that are not in that group are self-selecting out. And so that is something I have got to be conscious of next year. I I believe it's happening and I got I got to monitor that situation next year. I got to figure that out. Are you still somehow getting feedback from those students who are not participating in the conversation? Like, are you giving them a chance to free write or to send you an email? Are you giving them a journaling opportunity, even if they're not participating in the conversation? Or like, what's going on then? Oh, that's, that's, I, uh, you know, that's really good. I don't do that. No, I don't do that systemically. Do you have a learning management system? Well, you have that, you have free, you have free writing that occurs early on in the school year. Yeah. And again, again, I do it, I do it early on in each semester. When you have strong participation. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So I'm doing it twice a year. I'm doing it twice a year and I would probably, I bet there's a, I bet you're right. I bet it's correlated that when I am actively seeking, in fact, I know that it is because I've already, I mean, I, I remember stories of students, especially in January, students that had been checking out in December and then they come in January, ask for another sort of, uh, what was the term that's in the research? Values, affirmation, values. Yeah, values, affirmation. Yeah. Yes, yeah, we do a values, affirmation activity in January, and then I have the kids back, and then I lose them again in April. <laughs> so a simple thing that I should try is just instead of doing it once a semester, do it every quarter. You know, that should have consequences. And if they start That's laughing. not to say that you can't change, you know, question response patterns and right. other things to make exactly. sense, but that, that can be a direct if, uh, intervention yeah. that can give you recovery opportunities. And even just doing it every quarter is wrong. What I should be doing is responsive teaching and when I'm feeling the participation drag, uh, that, that's when I do it, right? Yeah. So even this quarter schedule is just, just, in time. just, ner- just neuroses. Do it when they need it is the <laughs> logical conclusion <laughs> of teach, this conversation. Yeah, teach them where they're at. And if they're not participating and they don't feel validated, then let's give them some free acknowledgement that their ideas matter. Free writing. I'll have my students sometimes, uh, like instead of like exit tickets, which I, I don't know why I just loathe them. Um, I'll just be like, you know, at the end of, or in the middle of giving notes, right? I, I don't I don't PowerPoint well, so I'll we'll talk about something and and I'll say <laughs> talk okay. about this with your group for for ninety seconds and then write your interpretation of it for the next three and a half that's five minutes of class time and i'm willing to sacrifice five minutes of class time for that kind of feedback and then i'll just we have canvas as a learning management system so i just have them all post it as a message to the instructor on whatever link we're using for that thing and then i can flip through them and i can read as many as i have time to read and it it gives me valuable information i think i don't know if it's actually good information but it's valuable So this paper has four points that it kind of makes as it goes through here, but I really grouped them into two pairs of two points. So I interpreted the first two to be solicit and build student knowledge and then building knowledge. So I need to know what you know and what you think, and then we're going to build from wherever you are is kind of how I I combine the first two. Then the second two is uh, 
the knowledge that they build needs to be relevant to their current questions. So if the canonical knowledge that I want to make is all the way over yonder, but their questions are right here in the immediate, in the proximal, then that's where we need to live and build. If I start to try to lay down information far from where their current schema lies, we're not going to make much headway. Uh, but then I was really interested by the last one. So if we're going to work with their proximal questions, we also need to uh, pair them with making change and having an effect on their current circumstance. So working on problems that can change or influence the systems that they are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis, which was their final point. So when we're talking about real-world problems and authentic work, we're talking about affecting real change. There was a uh, sub-theme in the latter half of this paper, which was about teaching for social justice. Uh, and that when you start inadvertently sidelining students based on experience and culture, because you have a very specific form of how something is done or what the right type of answers are, uh, they describe that as an epistemic injustice. And when students buy into that epistemic injustice, they opt out of participation and they call that epistemic oppression because these individuals are not invited to the generation of knowledge party that you're trying to throw in your classroom. So one of the like sort of philosophical, emotional take homes that I got from this is that creating a supportive growth focused classroom community is more important than any individual student getting the right answer. Because if they adopt membership in a growth-focused community, they will get to the right answer on their own. Yeah, so often you, you talk to students and, and they'll say, well, I, I can't do math, or a parent at a parent-teacher conference will say, oh, I was never good at this subject, so I'm amazed that my, my child cares about this so much. Um, it It's that it's that idea that you were just talking about, right? It's it's that maybe maybe they've been oppressed by this just the way that the the knowledge has been available to them, whether the teacher wants it to be that way or not. The teacher might care about those students so much, but also is trying to get them to I don't know be successful on a test or some other non relevant uh, assessment strategy that they just are are without knowing it. They're unconsciously telling those students that it's okay to try things, but this time is more important than exploring your questions. Uh, when I was reading this and I was kind of forming the message that that growth-focused community is what I want to foster, I re remembered something that happened to me just uh, yesterday in class. One of our practices in class is that we uh, identify a topic that we're going to review, and I I randomly select students to receive a marker to go up to the whiteboard and tell us what we know about that topic. Now, all of the other students are doing the same thing at their desks, but we as a class are going to edit, revise, and improve the one that's submitted to the class for review. So there was a student who uh, I, I was going to give her the marker today, and she was like, oh, I don't know any of this. I don't know what's happening. I don't want to go. Everyone's going to make fun of me. She had a lot of anxiety about performing uh, or, or putting her ideas for class um, consideration. And unprompted by me, 
One student said, no one in this room is going to make fun of you. And another student says, you should really just put it up there because you're going to get feedback and you're going to know what you got wrong so that you'll get it right next time. And she reluctantly took the marker and went up there. And then while she was up there, she had these series of experiences where she was putting something up there and she was like, oh, oh yeah. And then she jumped somewhere else on the board and wrote something. Oh, oh yeah. And then she remembered something else on the board. And she was up there writing new information while the class was watching her for literally 20 minutes of my 15-minute class period. She continued to write new and pertinent information all on her own for 20 minutes. And when she was done, she was beaming like I have never seen her before. And that happened because those students supported and encouraged her academic risk. And I have been working for that moment for eight months. That does not just happen. That is that is payoff, and I am proud of that moment. Yeah, I wanted to share that. That's a really good illustration of, of that idea that, that growth only happens when you're when you're just a little bit uncomfortable, right? Not too uncomfortable to take the risk, not too comfortable to try something new, uh, and the student has has put themselves out there in such a way that uh, they're they're really flexible and they're open and and they're they're making those connections and after reading this paper even if those connections are are maybe not what do they say canonically accurate right right it might be worth the effort anyway and the students have just never been trained that way in the current system because they've been kind of like well, as soon as a teacher sees something that's wrong they jump in and try to correct it to try to like make the student feel better about the way that they're doing things or so that the one person's mistake is not then transferred somehow into the other 24 kids that might be in the room and like they there's we're worried about some like miscommunication or or some misinterpretation of the knowledge becoming instantly ingrained into all of those students minds if Sue's learned something the moment it came out of anybody's mouth in our room, wouldn't that be such a simple and easy world we lived in? Right. <laughs> the job would be. Right, yeah. Easy. We should be so lucky that that were the case. These conversations make me think of the social model of disability, which we discussed in 010 when we were looking at the paper by Spectre Levy and Yifrock, describing how all of our students have this breadth of unique experiences and their learning disabilities are just one of a number of differential cultural experiences and life experiences and their background understanding and their different prioritizations. And it made me think of a conversation I was having earlier this week about universal design. When we were sitting in this room, we were talking about how I might help a student understand modeling who could not see. And so we were talking about the behaviors that that, per that student might have, what I might prompt from them. And I was talking about how this tactile experience might help them. Well, we use this these physical materials and so they can build this particular shape or that shape and describe how variables might lead to these different things and honestly like that's a valuable skill that oh my god every student should be doing that and so ultimately what you come to is you normalize non-typical experience and so you stop teaching to that middle demographic that we so often prioritize in our classroom of I'm teaching to this typical experience and then I want to 
try to include the weird couple of students. And then I, next day, teach to this typical experience and I try to include that weirdness. And so ultimately you're prioritizing that small sliver of students who are in the middle and everybody else gets alienated throughout the course of your progress. And the story that you tell is one saying, if you are intentional about focusing on the non-typical experiences, because so few of us are typical in the first place, that you start to normalize that breadth of experience. And so the student who has burned the tortillas has a valuable story to tell. And somebody else who is not used to being able to read and they have to find a tactile way to make an expression, everybody has that, that new way to experience a topic. And so you not only build this inclusive space where everybody gets to participate, but you include all these new learning modalities and all these new perspectives that also improve student participation and everybody gets better. I just keep thinking about your episode, your last episode, 14, uh, and the kind of climate change topics that you were trying to talk on when you were talking about um, like controversy. Uh, and I just keep thinking about how some of the things you're saying today kind of link back into the, the anecdotes you were, you were using in that episode. Uh, and I'm just uh, in mad reflection mode right now. But I also saw some of those connections, especially in the fourth bullet, which we're not going to end up discussing very much. The, so if we're addressing their proximal questions and we're producing change in their, in their local world, then we have to have that courage and that fortitude to go and engage with controversial topics for all the reasons that we discussed. So if we're going to produce meaningful change that are relevant to the questions they have with their current understanding, then we have to live in that space. And that's, I, I also saw some of those connections. I would be interested in knowing if there is some research out there that connects kind of like objectives-based and, and standards-based grading systems or assessment strategies and project-based learning where you tell the student ahead of time, these are the five things you need to know at the end. Explore that in whichever way is most applicable to you or, or, or you're most passionate about. I, I'm wondering if there's any, any research that links those kind of project-based learning strategies and the social justice and the epistemic agency that's being talked about in this paper that that shows some measurable benefit to the students that way uh, as a way that, that could help teachers kind of adopt the standards and and not name only but actually in spirit as as this uh, this paper is kind of asking you to like reread the framework not as as like a new set of standards, but as a, a new almost philosophy for how you're going to approach science teaching. Now we do other stuff. So our second segment is a hat trick for one of our community members who has submitted to us yet another article that he has asked us to consider how one bad employee can corrupt a whole team. So it's really looking at like departmental dynamics, but this is from Harvard Business Review. And so this is thinking from a broader team perspective, but I think it applies to departmental and building culture. And so really the article is talking about how do we deal with or what are the consequences of having one non-productive or non-compliant departmental member within a larger group, what are the consequences of and how do we deal with? The research was done in the setting of a financial firm, uh, but it's about human-human interactions, which means as long as you got humans, some of these things are going to apply. 
ultimately, I felt like it's it's a little bit it's a popular article, so it doesn't it doesn't directly reference any of the research that they're discussing. But I took the gist to be is talking about value signaling. So the consequence of having one non-compliant or a non-cooperative team or, member or unethical team member or unethical team member is of greater consequence than having many compliant or productive or ethical team members. One bad apple has a far greater consequence is the general gist of the article. And it really, it meant to me value signaling, which is the thing that I like and care about a lot. Uh, so it made me think of like broken window theory is what it made me think of. Uh, it's actually a policing policy. And so I was looking at some research about what happens to people's behaviors where there are contextual cues about normalized behavior. So in an environment where we see broken windows, we see increases in the sense of theft. Wherever there's a neighborhood where there's a lot of graffiti, people generally tend to do more graffiti. So people respond to social cues about what is normalized behavior or what's acceptable behavior. And just to be clear, broken window theory is a controversial thing, especially from a policing standpoint. I don't mean to wade into all of that, but I want to at least be responsible in saying that's controversial. And the research, which is on the website, is not building to consensus yet. But for our purposes, I think norm signaling is the conversation that we're having. Dishonest employees increase dishonest behavior in honest employees. That was the bottom line. And the measurement was that new employees with histories of misconduct increase misconduct of the team by 37%. Now, this was measured based on these were financial firms that were being examined. So they were they were identifying misconduct as any time there was some kind of settlement to a client for 10000 or any time there was kind of a court ruling uh, against the favor of the, of the firm. But those instances were identified as misconduct and those were uh, increased by 37% when a new member with a history was introduced to the team. So this idea about human behavior that we set the norms for each other as teachers in our classroom, we can see this. If I've got a policy that no cell phones are allowed in my classroom and I let a student get away with it because we have a good relationship and I know that they're not trying to be disruptive and they're going to put it away right away, then I have established for my classroom that any student can try to get away with this and some of them will succeed. And that will encourage that behavior and it will become normalized. So in the education world, what does this mean? We're really looking at this from an administration level. What is the, what is the consequence of tolerating practices that you identify as suboptimal in your school? See, I don't, yes, this is ultimately an administrative responsibility. There are some things that aren't our responsibility but are our problem. Yeah. So from a department standpoint, the things that we allow determine the things that are our culture, right? So even in a large department, even from a standpoint of a department chair who has no real administrative power, the things that we allow are the things that define us as a department. If we're sitting in a PLC and we say, these things are not acceptable, but I'm not prepared to speak out against them. Yes, they are acceptable. Yes, they are. I think that all of us as a participant on a team, we have some responsibility because we have some control over the dynamics of the team in which we participate. Yeah, the question is always, to what extent is it my problem and to what extent is it, Within to what extent control. my behaviors are responsible? Yeah. And, and it may be much less 
than an administrator, yeah. but yeah, I, I hear what you're coming from. And also, he and I have different, really, like, deeply seated differences with how we um, address, I guess, social change of our sphere of influence, mm-hmm. and that's also okay. Um, there are enough biology students that, like, I have 80% of them, and then there's a section that is, goes to two other different people. And so the first year that I was there, the, the person who who had the other class with me, we're getting into the evolution unit, and and he has he has questions. He's like, I usually just didn't give much give much time to this because I I don't value this explanation. And it's to the point three years later that he does a pretty good job with well, it. Well done. And he's I mean he's not a he's a he's an awesome dude. It's just he had never he had never been taught that growing up. He didn't approach it in the schools that he was in in college, really. And then he started teaching. He teaches mostly physical science, not often biology. Occasionally, get a biology class, and so it's just never been a priority to him. And it's a priority to me. And he wants very much for a kid that's in his class to get the same experience as a kid in my class. And so he he's raised his bar significantly. Like I think this conversation is important to have and to air and to share. I just don't know how I can do it in a way that is not personal. If you actually look at the research and what it says about the impact of particular policies on how schools get better, it's actually encouraging. I felt really great about what this particular article said. So there's a piece of research that I will cite to say if you care about this particular popular science article with no references, go read the actual research because getting beneath the veil of effective schools, evidence from New York City, identified with a statistical rigor the five characteristics that best predict which schools are the most effective and which schools have teachers that experience the greatest growth, which I think is what matters. We like to talk about the shoulds on this podcast. So we've talked about complications in teaching science education. We've talked about complications of interdepartmental relationships. Let's get to some shoulds. A survey was given to 39 charter schools assessing teacher development, instructional time, data-driven instruction, parent outreach, school culture, professional development, policies, student assessment, school environment, discipline, student aspirations, lesson plans, and on-task behavior. They had interviews with the principal, they had interviews with teachers, they had interviews with students, and they recorded classroom sessions. This was a meaty, comprehensive data accrual. In addition to that raw data that they observed themselves, they also collected data from the New York City Department of Education. So they had state state test scores for their students. They had uh, both in English and math, and they got information from public schools and charter schools for comparison purposes. This was robust. They had complex, they devised complex formulas for their statistical analyses, and it was, for those of you that like numbers, this is a glorious read. So the real question is, what did they find that mattered, and how do we use that in our schools? Because the research is great, but how do I make it actionable in my department. There are a handful of things that explained a lot of the variation that they saw between schools. The first one is give your teachers feedback. Give them authentic, impactful, relevant feedback. So how do we do that? This is about relationship between 
teachers and their administrators, but also teachers and their peers. We need to have opportunities to be in each other's classrooms or have our administrators in our classrooms and to give feedback. It, this is not just, I was here, here's a pat on the back, you're doing good work. But I was here, I liked this, but this other, were you aware that this was happening in your classroom? I like this, but have you considered this? We're not talking about punitive or punishing behaviors. We're talking about food for thought so that we have something to improve upon, something for me to think about when I'm in my classroom, I'm having those interactions. When I'm in my classroom and I'm planning for future events. I think it goes back to a comment that Isaac made in the previous section about we should be a little bit uncomfortable. That's where we need to live our life. So if you have somebody in the room who can say, here's a couple of things to think about. Here's a couple of questions or a couple of observations I made that maybe you didn't collect. Think about them so that when you do this lesson or a different lesson or a similar lesson next time, you can do them a little better. I think it's about having another pair of eyes to make you a little bit appropriately uncomfortable. And from... From someone who's on the receiving end of that, I want to tell you all that it's okay to say, listen, I don't prioritize this feedback. I recognize this criticism, but that's not really something I'm trying to deal with right now. It's not a high priority for me. That's okay. It's okay to come to the conclusion that that piece of feedback is not really something that I'm into. But what needs to be happening is that I'm open to hearing it. I'm open to having the discussion. Mr. Ralph and I disagreed on a lot of things our first three years of teaching. He would tell me some things that I'd be like, I'm, I don't care that he said that. And other times he would tell me something that was like, oh my gosh, that is crux and it is valuable and I need it. But what if, we, if we had a relationship where we shut each other down or ignored each other all the time, I would have not gotten those crux pieces of information. So I need to keep that line of communication open because when those gems come to me and they change my life, I can be better. It's okay to be differential with the feedback you get. It's okay to say not every feedback Every piece of feedback that I get from my administrators or I get from my peers is something that I have to adhere to. But the discussion, the conversation, the exchange between you, your department, and your administrators is what keeps us going. It's where we get new inspiration for new ideas that we can, with our hearts, grab onto and get excited about improving. So how do you... How do you see this working in your building? So my, my building has a teacher walkthrough scaffold in place. Like there's a Google form you can go. You can go into a teacher's classroom. You spend five minutes in there. A lot of it's about engagement and, and activities and kind of what type of things students are doing. But like how could we edit that even just the littlest bit so that the person doing the walkthrough is not, you know, burdened with an extra whatever five or 10 minutes of their plan period they have to take to do this, but also the feedback is now more valuable to the individual teacher instead of at the building level, kind of where we have it now. Yeah. And that goes back to, it It takes time. It really does take time. That's Woodruff talked about our interaction. When we were young teachers, we had a period of our day where both of us were scheduled to be in each other's classrooms, period. Every day, all all hour every time that was what we were scheduled for and there was no form to fill out there was no box to check there was no there was no oversight and so we had every opportunity to abuse that but it was really and valuable once we get started 
I just want to say that sometimes we took that liberty to to not be in each other's classroom to say, I've got this need for this thing that I'm planning and it's a problem and I, I'm having a, a hurricane of a day and I, I'm sorry, I can't be in your classroom today. We did exercise our professional judgment to sometimes, quote, abuse that responsibility. But for the most part, we both took it seriously and we were in each other's classrooms. And so that freedom translated to we never felt like we had to talk about anything. I was in that room so often the students knew who I was. They knew I was some other teacher and that I did teach biology. They had a question they could ask me, and they did sometimes. And if they if they were going to act out, they knew that I was in there a lot and that I wasn't tattling on them. So they did, and I had students misbehave right in front of me. And I needed that information so I could give Mr. Woodruff actual feedback about what was actually happening in his classroom. And so what for us, what it looked like was a a collegial scheduling that we were going to be in our rooms regularly with the only expectation being give your best feedback every day. And what I think was valuable out of that was not only that Mr. Woodruff could prioritize my feedback of here's three things I saw, two of them he doesn't care about, heck it, and one of them he's going to deal with right now, excellent. But also the two that he ignored, he knew happened. And so he could prioritize over the long game because he knew I was coming back tomorrow and next week and next month. And so he knew, hey, that's the third time I've heard that. Maybe I need to deal with it now. Maybe I should modify my priorities. Or, hey, I ignored that and it went away. I was correct. That wasn't a thing that I needed to modify my practice. And so the regular feedback over and over again allowed him to make long game decisions that made our conversation more efficient over the long term and produced a collegial relationship that is second to none full stop. So what you're saying is, you know, after reading this paper, what the research says is instead of taking more of like a shotgun approach where you go to lots of teachers' classes for a very short period of time and you kind of like check in there, it's probably better to have a person paired with somebody else, like a teacher-mentor relationship or either just a, a partner kind of thing, and you spend a more extended period of time with one teacher instead of spread out over the whole building? Or does the research say that it doesn't matter as long as the feedback is of a certain quality? I, I can't say that I know the answer to that question. I can't say that I don't I don't know that that's been published or explored, and maybe it has, and I'm, it's a hole in my understanding of the research. I have some inferences that I'd like to draw, and I'll share them, and they may be, they may be totally wrong. But if you want to do something well, you have to invest time in it. And also, we are humans, and we value relationships. So if I am, the more I have built a relationship with someone, the more readily I'm willing to be changed by that someone. We can sit down during our during our cooperation period. I can say, hey, remember Trish back in the back? And she's like, yeah, we talked about Trish all the time. And be like, Trish was doing that thing that she does a lot. And he's like, yeah, I've seen her do that. I'm like, hey, she was doing that less because this example resonated with her in a way that we both know fits with her personality. He's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Those kinds of conversations can only happen if both of you know each other and know the students. And that's only one of the many I didn't like any of that. Mr. Ising said it very, very early in this that it is surprisingly smooth for a 12.4 APV.
Uh, I drank it very quickly. I drank it abnormally quick. I drank it. Yeah, quick. you beat me to the end of the first bottle, yeah. which is atypical. That is correct. I drank it faster than I usually drink these beers because it was just so delicious, and uh, I enjoyed doing so. It's got the whiskey flavor to it, which is something that we observed in our previous, like the Oak Getty before it. Uh, it even looks that way, and yet there's no bitterness, which is something that's not always true of stouts. There's zero. I found it to be almost exclusively sour with the burn of the barrel. It definitely has a little bit of burn to it, but I would say if I were comparing this to the uh, Oak Aged uh, Imperial Yeti, that this just had muted flavors overall, at least from what I remember. I feel like there was less of the the bourbon. I feel like there was less of coffee, less of chocolate compared to other chocolate stouts, and that the aromaticity of this particular beer overall is just a little fainter than those of its similar ilk. For the money that we spent on the on the beer, you prefer the Ed Yeti. Yeah, I yeah, I would. Me too, actually. I, I, I agree. What did you think? And you drank something else. What do you think? Well, that's our month. We really appreciate you listening to us. We are on a lot more podcast services this uh, this month. So we are on Stitcher. We're on Google Podcasts. We are also on TuneIn. So check us out on whatever platform is most agreeable to you. But otherwise, discuss research, struggle well, empower each other.